they were talking about um, the fact that there's sharks in Sydney Harbor. So he named me the triathlete most likely to get eaten by a shark because of the bad luck I had had going into it. That Triathlon Show, episode 102. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we get to combine very good advice and practical tips with a whole lot of inspiration and motivation as I interview Karen Smyers. Uh, she is a legend of triathlon. We discuss her career and all her trials and tribulations. There are many, but we also get into specific tips and advice for masters athletes on training in general, but also on balancing that training with a career and a family and everything that you have to balance. Karen, just a little bit of a background. She raced professionally until the age of 49 and she has won three world championship titles. Uh, two ITU World Championships and one Ironman World Championship. And the one Ironman and ITU title came in the same year, within two weeks of each other, in 95, I believe, which is insane. It's uh, an amazing accomplishment. And she has placed in the top five and top ten in Kona several times while still in her 40s. So that's also, those are incredible achievements. She came back from cancer to almost go to the Olympics when she was 38 or 39. And that was thyroid cancer that she had to battle. And she also has seven national triathlon titles, including winning six in a row and one national duathlon title. And she was in the inaugural USAT Hall of Fame, well deserved. And now today she, she coaches and she does motivational speaking and uh, yeah, you will hear in the interview uh, that motivational speaking and it, she has a story that definitely fits that perfectly. But before we hear the interview, this episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. Remember that until the end of February, all that Triathlon Show listeners can get a free box or tube of Precision Hydration electrolytes by going to precisionhydration.com using the discount code Show, all one word, at checkout and you'll get that box to you for free and you can use that of course to with together with the online sweat test the free online sweat test that will give you advice on what strength of electrolyte you should use in your endurance sports this episode is also sponsored by triathlon corner a triathlon web shop on triathlon-corner.store we are all crunched for time and going out to a physical shop to buy some of the triathlon gear that you don't have, that you need, maybe to replace something that you broke. Uh, at least in my case, that's often the case. Uh, so that's precious time wasted that could be spent training. So shop online when possible. Uh, that will save you time to train and to also have more time to balance family career and uh, with training as we talk about today with Karen and shopping online can be done is best done at triathlon-corner.store but without any further ado let's dive into the interview with Karen Smyers 
Today on That Triathlon Show, it's my great pleasure to welcome Karen Smyers to the podcast. How are you, Karen? I'm very good, thanks. Perfect. And uh, this is uh, a different kind of episode compared to most that I do. This will be as much inspirational and motivational as uh, informational, I think, although we have some informational as well. But your story is, is one that's very, very special, and some listeners have probably heard about it. But for those who haven't, can you give us a very quick overview of your triathlon career? Uh, sure. So I uh, was always a sporty person all through growing up, and um, I was a swimmer and to walk onto the running team um, in college. And when I got out of college, I was just desperate to find a way to keep competing in sports somehow. And uh, luckily, I discovered triathlon through a college roommate, actually, that started doing them first. And so I really just started it as a hobby, just so thankful for, that I could keep sport a part of my life. Um, and uh, uh, within the first year or two, I it was this is back in 1984. So it was still the beginning stages of the sport getting going um, around where I live, which is um, I'd moved to the Boston uh, area. And so um, one of my first races, I uh, would have finished second, but they called up somebody else to win the prize money. It was the Boston Bud Light race. And so um when I went up af afterwards and said, hey, how come I couldn't collect the prize money? Uh, the guy said, well, you didn't enter the pro category. And so I, I said, well, how do you do that? And he said, you check this, the other box next time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I started doing. And that's how I became a pro triathlete. Um, so uh, the beginning the first five years or so, I still held a full-time job, even though I was racing in the pro category. So I wasn't all in, but I definitely realized that I was um, making progress and occasionally able to race against the best. So uh, 1989, I finally went full time and um, was able to attend the very first world championships in Avignon, uh, France, as part of the U.S. team and finished fourth there, which was an enormous breakthrough for me. And um, so from then on, I just kind of kept moving up the ranks and managed to win a world championships the next year in 1990 and uh won another one another itu world championships in 95 um but i also ventured into long distance in 93 <clears throat> doing my first uh hawaii ironman and um the next few years uh made that a part of my schedule and finally managed to win that in 95 so uh kind of uh, so, so you, know, you won, done won, all won, the won. distances, which is a little unusual, especially at the same <laughs> both, time. <laughs> you and Ironman World Championships came in in the same, or some of them. You you have more ITU titles, of course, but but in '95 you won both of them, which is pretty pretty insane, <laughs> given how different they are. Yeah, I have to say it's. Uh, I didn't plan it that way necessarily, but it all worked out and. Uh, looking back at the time, I didn't really think of it as being something, you know, incredibly hard or impossible. It was just the way my schedule was working out and I was going to give it a go. But since then, I've realized how difficult it really was to do that. So I'm pretty uh, uh, thankful that uh, uh, it all worked out for me that year. And, and how did it uh continue then? You continued racing for a long time and uh, uh, so keep keep the story going 
All right. Well, um, you know, after I won the Ironman, I definitely was excited to try and go back and um, defend my title. And in, um, you know, my nemesis at the time was Paula Newby Frazier, who um, I had managed to beat in 95, but partly due to her beating herself. She had had a really tough time um, with her nutrition that year and just some, I think, it was her, she was supposed to retire that year and uh, after um, hopefully winning her eighth title. And, um, but I passed her in the last half mile when she was kind of stumbling and even running backwards at one point, which helped me out a little. <laughs> but um, so she decided not to retire after, you know, not having the race that she wanted to end her career. So she came back in 96 and I was in better shape and I was really fired up to have a good race. And, um, and I ended up having some nutritional issues, um, was throwing up at mile three of the run, even though I was thinking I could break three hours in the run that year. So um, I managed to pull it together and come back to finish third, which was um, a pretty good result given how bad I was in the middle of that run. Um, but I was feeling pretty unfulfilled and looking forward to, you know, going back and uh, racing again a few times. But in 97, I started a series of accidents and illnesses that kind of kept me uh, in and out of the sport for a little while. So uh, started off with a, I was changing a glass storm window in uh, June of 97 and the glass shattered while it was lifted over my head and a shard fell and sliced through my hamstring. Um, I was supposed to get on a plane the next day to go race in Monte Carlo at a World Cup and I'd also done all the training for doing an Ironman in, uh, in Rote. So um, instead of getting on a plane, I found myself in a cast looking at a uh, six month rehab. So my husband and I did a little strategizing. I was getting to that age where we were definitely discussing starting a family. Um, the Olympics I knew were kind of on the horizon. So I was trying to figure out when do I fit in, fit this in. And so all of a sudden faced with six month rehab, we decided eh, maybe nine month maternity leave is a pretty good overlay. <laughs> so we got to work right away. And, uh, my daughter was born in May. And, uh, so it gave me time to kind of rehab from that injury, um, patiently. Um, and by the time, um, the 98 after having her, I felt good right away, was able to get back into training and thinking I was going to go back to the 98 Ironman. And in August of that year, um, out on a long training ride, I was hit by an 18 wheel truck. And um, luckily, he didn't run me over. I probably wouldn't be here talking to you. But he knocked me off my bike and I fell kind of going down a hill and ended up breaking six ribs, uh, separating a shoulder and um, with a lung contusion. And, uh, and also probably the more lasting uh, problem was uh, just a fear of cycling in traffic. Um, I think, God, that's happening way too often these days. Um, but I kind of came face to face with the decision of uh, either overcoming that fear or quitting triathlon. And so that's my love of the sport basically got me back out there and, um, and riding again. And, you know, over time I've at least gotten, so I don't completely freak out when I hear a truck behind me. Um, but, um, that injury took me out of the rest of 98. So 99, I was back to make a comeback and, um, 
the I, uh, the Olympics were looming on the horizon then, you know, 2000, first time ever for the Olympics for triathlon. So we were really, really excited about that. And um, I had two years of non-competition to quickly get my ranking up so that I could actually attend the Olympic trials. So my 99 came became mostly all about trying to um, get into some I2 races, place well at some World Cups and um, earn ranking points. And uh, I did pretty well, I definitely moved up for, you know, I got a sixth and then a fourth and then a third in World Cup races, um, which was enough to get me uh, qualified for the Sydney Olympic trials. Um, and then I was able to do Ironman at the end of um, that season in October. And uh, I finished second to Lori Bowden, had a, I, what I felt like was a great race, given how many years I'd been out. Um, and uh, she actually had to break the run record to pass me on the run, which was, I'll take credit for that. <laughs> and um, so unfortunately, right before the Ironman, I had gone to the doctor for some, uh, like a bronchitis that I couldn't get rid of and um, mentioned that my uh, throat seemed swollen and he realized that it was my thyroid gland that was very enlarged and he sent me to get an ultrasound just to make sure it wasn't anything to worry about and unfortunately the ultrasound showed a bunch of nodules which uh, as the technician told me eh, probably means you have cancer and so I kind of consulted with um, my doctor who said that the next step was I needed to get um a, a biopsy to to find out whether I did indeed have cancer but he knew that the Ironman was coming up so he he let me choose whether I wanted to wait until after Ironman to to find out and my husband and I decided to tackle one thing at a time so I, I did the Ironman that year knowing that I might have cancer but um, didn't have it confirmed until after Hawaii that year um, Unfortunately, another little wrinkle in the whole uh, Olympic trials qualifying uh, endeavor, I went to one more race after the Hawaii race, uh, a race in Mexico, and a World Cup race just to solidify my ranking. And so it was draft legal. And on the bike portion, uh, a girl on the U.S. team, Lauren Jensen, just really a bizarre accident where her pedal unthreaded from her crank as we were standing to go up a hill and I was right behind her you know in the draft legal pack and so she went down completely without warning right in front of me and I toppled over over top of her and landed on my shoulder and broke my collarbone so um, I flew back in November from Mexico with this broken collarbone had my biopsy the next day which showed that I had cancer and um, this was all, you know, four months or five months before the Olympic trials. Um, so I ended up getting my thyroid removed um, in December. And um, luckily I could combine the uh, rehab from that operation with the healing of the collarbone. Um, and so I was able to finally kind of start swimming and trying to get my swim back in like a February, I think it was, so January, February. So I had my road uh, cut out for me, and her my work cut out for me, and um, I gave it my best shot, but wasn't able to make the Olympic team for 2000. Um, and so the end of 2000, instead of so, going... So how, how old were you at this point in uh, 2000? So 
2000, I would have been um, 39, right? So right. definitely, you know, it's getting to the tail end of my career. But, you know, in um, at the Sydney Olympic trials, the, my issue was that, you know, the sport had started to change um, with the draft legal um um, you know, change in the in the format. So I was a part of the first ever um, draft legal world championships, which was Cancun, and I actually you know managed to win that one. But it was before people were really figuring out how to uh, work it to their advantage, I guess. So in that race, the fast swimmers weren't able to stay away, and I was in a pack with some people like Emma Carney, who was a good rider. And we managed to catch the front um, people. And I just happened to have a great run that day. I think I was partly heat trained from being in Hawaii. Um, but since then, when I was out in 97, 98, you know, the really fast swimmers started figuring out how to work together and stay away. And it became, you know, I think also a lot of the good bikers ended up getting discouraged and dropping out of the ITU format. So it soon became that if you weren't a front pack or maybe a second pack swimmer with, you know, some good riders with you, you weren't going to get to the front of the race ever. And um, that's what happened to me. Like in the Sydney Olympic trials, I was like third pack swimmer and um, I biked, you know, as hard as I could, but just could not make up ground um, on the people that were working so well together up front. And then I ended up having, I think one of the fastest run splits, definitely the fastest American run split, um, and I think maybe second or third overall. So my running was there, even though I was, you know, getting a little bit, um, long in the tooth. <laughs> um, but it was primarily my swim that, uh, ended up, I think, keeping me out of, uh, the Olympics. So, um, and I think that was partly, it was my own fault for sort of not getting the memo about how important <laughs> the swim had become. Um, and also having, you know, some of the setbacks beforehand with the broken a collarbone and the separated shoulder um, that kind of, I think, just impacted my swim a little more than I realized. Was there ever any question of uh, not coming back to triathlon with through all these injuries and uh, and other issues, cancer that you, that you had? Or were you always motivated to come back? And, and how did you handle it mentally with all, all, these, uh, all these challenges that you faced? Yeah, I would say that the one time that I was most close to quitting was after the truck accident. Um, And that was very much partly because I was a new mom. You know, I had this little two-month-old girl waiting for me at home who was, you know, relying on me to be there. And so all of a sudden I realized, like, it's not just all about me anymore. Um, I've got somebody else in my life to consider. And um, and that scared me a lot, uh, how close I'd come to getting killed And so that's when I really did have to kind of examine um, how much it meant to me and whether it was worth the risk. And, you know, ultimately, um, I decided that, uh, you know, I, I there's risks in everything you do and um, the chances of me actually being killed. If, if I could walk away from being hit by an 18-wheeler, um, then maybe I had my close call <laughs> and I'd be okay. Yeah. But I did, you know, I had to, I changed a little bit when I ride and who I ride with and what roads I ride on. So I definitely, I was already a pretty conservative rider, but I became even more so. Um, but once, you know, once I, it came down to that decision, I think I became almost more committed when I realized like, that's how much this sport means to me, you know? Mm. So, um, and yeah, all through the other ones, it never really 
occurred to me. I just felt like I had so much more I wanted to do. I was not burnt out in the least. Um, I just loved having, being able to make a living at what I still considered a fun hobby was, it's just a dream come true, really is. So what, what do you attribute that to, that you had such a long career and you still kept it fun and motivating? Because that's something that a lot of professionals and age groupers can struggle with a lot. So so that's really interesting to hear how you did that. Yeah, I think um, a big part of it is um, living here in New England, uh, where we have a pretty significant winter. Um, and it just forces you to cycle your training so that you're not just trying to stay in shape year round. Um, I have to take some time um, at least back off in the winter and uh, mostly just doing a little bit of biking indoors, trying to maintain a little uh, quality. But, you know, biking takes up a, a lot of time outdoors. And so it's probably a good, you know, eight hours of training that I don't do um, during the wintertime that I am doing in the summer. So it really makes you kind of hungry when the spring rolls around and the weather starts getting nice. You sort of feel like you're reborn, rejuvenated and very excited to get going again. So I think that definitely helped me. I never was one to go off and, you know, uh, follow the the summers by going to Australia or uh, or even really doing training camps in the winter. I, I just, um, I don't know, I found that early on that it kind of worked for me to... Um, uh, back off a little and I would still do some racing occasionally, but I'd usually be pretty um, doing it based on um, just hanging on to fitness from, you know, September, October. Um, I would sometimes race, you know, into November, I guess. I After Ironman, I always found I could get a couple more races out of my system without really training all that hard. Um, and then I would sometimes go to like Chile in January and do a race. But again, that was uh, more for fun. Um so I guess that's a big part of it for me. Um, and I think the other thing is just surrounding myself with um, people that I enjoy training with that keep it fun. I found a triathlon club, uh, Team Psycho, that um, started up kind of early on in the early 90s and just a few um, amateur guys that were really good for me to train with um, and uh yeah, it's just sort of kept it fun. It's part of my, you know, social life as much as um, um, as anything. So it's not like um, when I'm training, I'm missing out on other things. And you know, my husband's been a huge part of this whole journey as well. He used to train with me a lot um, in the 80s and 90s and even into the 2000s. He also competed in Hawaii several times. So um for us, it was fun, like going on the, the trips and stuff. It was like our way to see the world together, you know. So um, I've never felt like I was putting the rest of my life on hold while I pursued this dream. Whereas I think a lot of the people that have nowadays gotten into it, you know, right out of college and maybe never gotten a chance to, you know, pursue a career of another kind um, and, or, you know, sometimes barely making money. Um, and racing just so much in order to, you know, either get ITU points or to get enough points to qualify for Hawaii. It becomes much more of a, um, a jo all encompassing job that maybe, you know, you have to exclude everything else to get it done. Um, so I think things have changed a little bit, so it might be hard to kind of make it the way I used to make it. <laughs> mm, yeah. But your points there 
are very applicable for for age groupers for example that's taking time off uh, to not not fret about not being able to do those big bike weeks in in winter and actually reducing the volume there and then be motivated come springtime those are pretty really good and and can be used by by any age groupers that, that are the majority of listeners of this podcast yeah so so and related to that because you this is a an interesting really interesting topic actually because you could continue to race way into your 40s and you took a national championship title another one was it your sixth or something in 2001 and that was when you would have been 40 or 41 i guess yes yeah and then and then you took fifth at kona uh, as well in in that year yeah and you got another top 10 at kona when you were 44 in 2005 and yeah. and you continued racing professionally even at age forty nine, if my research is right. So how how did you manage that? That's uh, an incredible achievements that you uh, incredible achievements that you managed to to do in your forties. Yeah, um, again, I think it was um, it was partly just not wanting to give it up because I liked it so much. So um, I've always been motivated and. I know that, you know, after watching like what Dave Scott was able to accomplish at age 40 and again at 42 that, um, and, and just in general, I think there was a little bit of a, a revelation going on that, you know, especially in an endurance sport, you did not have to be, um, at the end of your career and in your late thirties. And I knew that some women were peaking in their late thirties. And, um, so I really was, trying to keep an open mind in terms of, you know, how much age had to slow me down. And um, so, yeah, with the motivation there to be able to wring the living daylights out of my pro card, <laughs> I just <laughs> kept going. Um, you know, I, I soon realized that I, I couldn't really do the um, race schedule that I used to in terms of racing over and over and traveling, and especially because I also had a second child in that time. Um, so I didn't want to be away from my family as much as, um, as in my, you know, the height, the height of my career. Um, but I still really enjoyed just, you know, finding a couple, uh, races to go to. I definitely started cherry picking a little bit more if I knew there was a pro race that had a, a you know, a small pro field that not enough people were going to be there. I'd be like, Oh good. I can still earn prize money. <laughs> um, but certainly, you know, going to Hawaii and, you know, finishing top 10, um, you know, I look back on that with more fondness than I felt at the time. At the time, I was like, I should be top five. You know, I was actually more, uh, I was demanding more of myself, just sort of thinking, you know, there's no reason I should slow down. I'm training well. And so um, it's funny. I think a lot of it is just what your expectations are of yourself. And if, if you let it get in your head that, oh, I'm 40 now, I, I'm going to start to suck, <laughs> excuse the language, then um I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But if you just sort of have the mind that I'm just one year older than last year and I felt good last year, why should things change? You know? yeah. So um, I, I think part of it's an attitude and part of it is, um, you know, one of the, I think, things that I've always had going for me is that I'm pretty good about listening to my body and um, just doing what it tells me. You know, I don't, I haven't ever really been coached, which um, as a couple of my friends say, you, you're impossible, you're uncoachable. And I'm like, well, at this stage of my game, I feel like I have more knowledge of myself than anyone else could have of me, you know. Um, but I 
do just, you know, I might have a workout in mind. I might head to the track and start doing a track workout. And if I feel like, oh boy, this is not happening today, I just walk off the track, you know. Um, I don't force myself to do things because it's on a piece of paper. And, you know, if I, I think there's a lot of people that they're mentally, um, I guess their mental strength comes from them doing the, the, the program that was on the paper. They feel like if I get through this, I'm strong. And I feel like that's a little bit of a, um, uh, a weakness actually, that you believe you are what was, you know, you believe that you, you can only be what was on the paper, you know, that you don't have the intuition to coax your body to its best by doing what it's capable of, you know? Um, so I think by, you know, backing off when my body told me to back off and um, working hard when it was ready to work hard, that that has kind of kept me in the game longer and um, maybe prevented some overtraining and overuse injury that maybe some other people end up um, uh, getting. So, yeah, it, it's difficult to find that find balance between being consistent and uh, and being flexible and, and taking those days off when needed uh, on the one hand, you don't want to get into the habit of quitting just because you feel a little bit tired. But then, as you say, listening to your body and learning what's what's a real signal and what's just just maybe your head telling you that uh, ah, I yeah, want to watch absolutely. Netflix instead of going training. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, it's not lost on me that you know many of the same people that will you know fight their way through every track workout or every you know um session where maybe all the indicators are saying like maybe it's not your day to do this workout they're the same people that often in a race quit you know and i'm like i don't quit in the race because that's where that's when you're supposed to not quit yeah. you know so i kind of feel like sometimes it's good to save that real inner resolve for when it really, really matters. I mean, they're not giving out, you know, awards and prize money in training. Um, the training is supposed to be a vehicle to get you to your best at race day. And so, um, you know, I'd like to make sure that people are at their toughest mentally um, on race day. And, um, True. and just to know the difference between, you know, um, when you really dig deep and give it your all. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying you don't work hard in practice because you absolutely do. And I know that a lot of the mental toughness is built through pushing through when you're not feeling good. So I think it does, It you know, I guess you have to kind of discern the um, intention of the workout. And, you know, if I'm supposed to be doing a quality session, but I realize that I'm not doing quality intervals anymore, then I'm like, okay, the purpose of the workout is defeated already. So it's better for me to stop and do it another day when I can actually hit the times I'm supposed to hit. Yeah, yeah, to totally agree. You you need to know, know the purpose and, and then and then if that's not possible to achieve, then then that's... It, right. it's a Whereas if you're out on a long ride and you're just feeling sort of bonky, you know, maybe that's when you're like, you know what? I got to figure out how to get through this because I'm also going to have to get through this type of thing in my race. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's uh, maybe a time that you do learn to push through, you know? Yeah. So, so did you change anything in your training other than listening to your body and being flexible with, with that? But did you do any conscious changes in how you plan your training, like allowing for more recovery or, or including strength training or things like that when as with age? Yeah. So, um, 
I didn't consciously train any, uh, train, uh, change anything. I mostly would um, just realize after maybe I would uh, attempt a series of, of sessions in a, in, within a week and realize that, oh boy, by the end of the week, I wasn't really doing very well. So, um, I, you know, I've, I gradually started um, just spreading things out a little bit more um, that maybe, a, you know, a quality session took a little more recovery. Um, I also, like I said, you know, realized that racing wise, I had to spread my races out a little bit more. Um, I would say the hard part for me in my forties is that because, um, I started to coach and, um, you know, the prize money and sponsorship was not quite as good in my forties as it had been in the height of my career. So I was, um, uh, doing more just to bring in income in terms of, um, you know, speak engagements and that kind of thing. So I found that I didn't get as much sleep all through that decade as I used to when I was only a pro triathlete and could really just, you know, I often, I was not an early morning uh, trainer, which um, I think that's another thing that some, it's hard for people because that work full time because they, they have a one slot when they can get their workout in. Usually it's, you know, before work or maybe some people will train after work or at lunch hour if they're lucky. But, um, I think that's one of the big thing that separates, uh, some of the pro triathletes from the age groups is that you can sleep in and train when your body's sort of feeling at its best. Um, and, uh, if you know that you only have the one slot, then you wake up and you just get it done because you know you don't have the option of uh, figuring out another time to do it, you know. So anyway, I found that that was definitely, I think, inhibited my recovery a little bit. It's just the fact that my life was so much more busy that I didn't have the luxury of getting, you know, my eight to ten hours of sleep every night like I used to when I was uh, um, had less on my plate. Um, and, you know, family time as well. Um, you know, driving kids around to sports things. And, um, so I feel like my life was more full and, uh, so I don't regret any of it, but I think it just adds a little, um, more challenge definitely to, you know, performing at your best when you have so many things to juggle. For sure. Do, do you have any, any good tips on how to, I mean, you can't eliminate those challenges, but, but ways that you can tackle them and, and handle them a bit better and get the most out of the, the hand that you're dealt, essentially, in terms of, for example, time management or, or balancing the family and yeah. the career and, and triathlon training? Yeah, well, I think just definitely being creative in terms of time windows. Uh, you know, I found that um, a big part of my um, time, I would be say, driving my daughter to a soccer game and I have to get her there in time for her warm-ups and I don't really care if I watch her warm-up. So I would almost always bring my running shoes and I'd go for a run while she was warming up and then i get back in time to watch the game. Um, so, or if she was at a tournament or something um, and there's, you know, an hour or two in between games, I would have my running shoes and, or my bike and go off and get my workout in. So I think it's sort of... Um, yeah, just learning or sometimes I would actually bike to um, the game and my husband drive her. Um, so doing little things like that, just figuring out time savings in terms of um, little windows that are, might be available or um, doing um, commute, using your commuting to get your training, that kind of thing um, is definitely helpful. Um, 
And the other thing is, you know, definitely when my kids were real young, you know, I, I loved just taking um, my daughter in the jogger out. Um, so I would sometimes get a run in with her, which I always found to be kind of fun. Hmm. Um, not, you know, you can't do your best training, but um, I would sometimes actually run to the track. She'd fall asleep in the in the trainer, uh, in the jogger, and then I'd do my track workout while she was sleeping in the jogger. <laughs> so there's, there's ways, you know, you just have to... Um, um, make sure that you understand that it's, you still have to make it a priority in your life. I think there's a lot of people, um, at least some of the people that I've come across, like that I used to coach and, um, as you know, either their job becomes more important, they have a, you know, get promoted or something and they just let uh triathlon go by the wayside. But, you know, I, especially this one guy, a CEO of his company, I'm like, you're setting the standard at your company. Like, what is it saying that you say that, you know, your job takes priority over all of your, you know, health needs, like, you should have an hour in your day to train, you know, and uh, everybody in your company should also have an hour of a day to spend on their health. And uh, if you know, the work culture is such that it doesn't allow for that, you got to change the work culture. (laughs) So um, maybe easier said than done sometimes. But I think, you know, just making sure that you realize that it, it should be a priority because everybody, even if you're not training to race at a high level in triathlon, you should all have an hour a day to devote to just exercise um, or strength training of some sort just to lead a productive, healthy life. I Absolutely. Found that you, you know, you end up being more productive at work if you do get in that hour of, uh, of exercise. You know, your brain has a lot more blood flow. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. We just talked about that in in one of the previous interviews I did did tonight with 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 Mike Ritchie, and uh, yeah, so <laughs> I have a good example actually. My 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 own dad, he's a a doctor at uh, the local hospital where where my family lives, and uh, and he tried to bring to the to the hospital board a, a proposal that that everybody should be allowed one hour per week of of paid time to train, not not lunch hour or anything. But and and he had cited all sorts of studies that had shown the benefits on on work performance and productivity but yeah, yeah he, he said that uh, they didn't even look at the proposal they oh, just really? dismissed it out of hand so <laughs> that, that, that really that, yeah. that, that, that wasn't wasn't the best way in my opinion for a board to handle a, a good <laughs> proposal in my opinion from from somebody working there but yeah. anyway uh, one, one more thing about your how to deal with and how to be be a good triathlete in in your 40s and as a master's athlete in general did you do anything with your nutrition or or did you always have a healthy diet or or what what yeah just go into that Uh, yeah well i i would say you know, I don't know if this hasn't been mentioned yet i don't think is that i'm 56 years old now um and I noticed a big change when I, pretty much after age 50 or so, that I felt like maybe menopause kind of changed my um, metabolism and just, you know, the way my body was processing things. So I've actually paid been paying more attention to it now um, than I did had to in my 40s. For some reason, I felt like in my 40s, my body just didn't really change all that much. Um, I definitely was reading about the fact that strength training was becoming more important, <laughs> but, um, I've, I've, I'm one of those people, I coach a lot of people now, should, I should say, do as I say, not as I do, but, um, I definitely did not do as much strength training as I kind of intended to do. Um, 
And that doesn't mean that I don't think it's important because I think it it is. It was more a matter, I think, for me of uh, just not having time for everything I wanted to have time for. Um, but I am being, I am finding that I have to pay attention more to um, nutrition in my 50s. And it's mostly just that I find that I am losing muscle. I'm accumulating a little uh a little even more to my muffin top than I ever thought I would. And so um, I'm reading a ton about like the ketogenic diets and stuff. And I just haven't been able to uh, take the plunge. Um, but I, I am taking some of the principles and doing, you know, just trying to to eat a lot less of the um, just simple carbs. Um, it's hard because that's been a big staple. I mean, that's how I... I've always cooked was, you know, I, you always have either a pasta or rice or um, tortillas or some sort of carbohydrate wrapped up in the rest of your uh, food. I mean, I was pretty good about including some protein and vegetables in every meal, but um, I find it really hard to cut out the carbohydrates. But I think that that's probably what my body's asking for at this point. So... It's a work in progress. This is coming from someone who has had a, a bagel with almond butter for breakfast probably every, almost every day of my life for about 30 years. So it's really hard to change that habit. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. My, yeah. my personal opinion, based on all that I read about nutrition, and I recently did two, uh, two episodes and more will follow on basically a research review on nutrition is that it's not carbs, but it's uh, the quality of carbs and uh, fruits and vegetables perfectly fine. So I'm not a proponent of ketogenic diets, but they work for some yeah, people. Yeah, no, I actually, it's, it's, yeah, in, well, it's individual, of course. So Yeah, yeah. I do think that's another big factor. I think that there are, there's, just some body types out there, I think that, you know, do really well on certain diets and then other people that don't do well on those diets. So I can't believe that I'm the type of body that would, you know, need to cut out all carbohydrates because I've lived on them for years and done so well, you know, but I do think that, yeah, I just have to be a little more careful at, um, first of all, the volume of what I eat and, um, and also just, yeah, the kind of empty calories that, um, I don't necessarily, but I, you know, I, I'm never going to go, I'm never going to cut beer out of my diet. So no, <laughs> I draw course. the line. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so it's more, I'm reading about it just to find out, you know, how it's working. And, um, and I read about it to find out excuses not to do it. Like, oh yeah, it's, is it, is it hurting, you know, high performance, like, or quality training? <laughs> um, what's so, the, what's the beer anyway. scene like in, in New England? Do you have a great selection of, of microbreweries and great craft beer? Or what's your favorite? Well, there's a ton of um, of yeah, new craft breweries, and uh, it's the home of you know places like Harpoon and Sam Adams, which I don't know if those are sold. Yeah, uh, Sam Adams at least is sold pretty globally. Yeah, yeah. but um, you know it's funny because I'm not a huge craft brewer. You know, people know I'm a big fan of of drinking beer, but I I tend to just go with something nice and kind of I, I really like Stella. Yeah. <laughs> And I like, I like, uh, I drank Foster's for years. Um, so I'm kind of, uh, I like just a nice uh, kind of a lager that I can drink 
there are pills now that I can drink a lot of without it being real hoppy or anything. Yeah. <laughs> and and on on this kind of uh, same theme of goofy topics, uh, you on your website, I read that you were named by Sports Illustrated as uh, the triathlete most likely to be eaten by a shark at the Sydney Olympics. <laughs> so I have to ask, <laughs> what was that about? How did that? Well, that was all about um, me trying to make the Olympic team after you know the media when the Olympics were. Uh, Sydney was kind of it was mostly when the trials were all going on so they started um, kind of you know the media was going crazy on just Olympic stories and somehow or other I got locked, latched onto as a good story because of the thyroid cancer and then the 18 wheeler and then the you know glass slashing the hamstring so um, and sort of one one media story gets a out uh, like gets a story they often another one gets the idea oh yeah that's a great idea so um i had a little media frenzy for a while when i was trying to make the sydney olympics and uh sports illustrated you know the guy had read about all of my uh trials and tribulations and then was just sort of making a joke because they were talking about um the fact that there's sharks in sydney harbor so he named me the triathlete most likely to get eaten by a shark because of the bad luck i had had going into it um <laughs> but i foiled those sharks by not making the team <laughs> <laughs> i guess there was some some humor to that as, as morbid as it <laughs> as it sounds yeah no but i thought it was a great uh a great way to get into sports illustrators <laughs> being named that so absolutely <gasps> So let's now move into the final segment of the interview, the rapid fire questions and take just uh, one sentence or two, 15 seconds or so to, to answer these. And the first one is what's your favorite book, blog or resource related to triathlon? Uh, you know, I really like dcrainmaker.com, uh, which is a site that reviews products. He does a great job. And I'm having, I'm always terrible about staying on top of new developments and stuff. So if one of my clients says, what garment should I get? You know, I go right to his website and I read about it to give them some yeah. answers. Yeah, I absolutely agree. What's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Uh, let's see. I would say... Well, I mentioned sort of listening to my body. I guess it would also just be, you know, being uh, resilient um, and, you know, being able to just uh, pick yourself up from failure and setback and just keep keep uh, keep trying, you know, and not looking back at where you were, but always concentrating on how do I move forward from where I am now. And finally, what do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some point in your career? Oh, I don't think I could answer that in 30 seconds. <laughs> so many things. No. Um, you know, looking back, I, I was a little afraid to start racing some of the big races uh, when I was still working full time in 84, 85. I kind of wish I'd, you know, taken the uh, the challenge a little bit earlier and turned pro, but it all turned out into a pretty nice long <laughs> pro career. So I guess I can't complain too much. Um, I guess... Uh, I wish I had upgraded my equipment earlier. I raced until for five years on training wheels on my bike because I thought I'm such a terrible biker. I don't deserve race wheels. And I think I probably cost myself quite a bit in terms of prize money and placement when I realized that it really does make a little bit of a difference, even when you aren't a great biker. <laughs> so by the time I finally got sort of uh, the courage to say, you know what, maybe I won't look like an idiot if I have a disc wheel on there. I like my biking just improved immensely. 
Perfect. And uh, you can be found on karensmeyers.com. Do you have any other, any social media that you're active on that you want the listeners to know about? Uh, well, I do. I am on Instagram. I think it's just called Karen Smyers. Um, gosh, I'm not very good at social media, but I do post occasionally on Twitter and Instagram, um, but, uh, and Facebook, but, um, yeah, I'm still kind of a, uh, old school, <laughs> not very good at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what about your, your coaching? You, uh, you have uh, classes and, and you also coach people locally and do you do, uh, do it remotely as well? How does that work? Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, I do some uh, mostly, you know, via email, although a lot of my people are local to the Boston area. Um, but I have people spread out as well. Um, but yeah, for sure, if anyone's listening that's in the um, Boston area, my indoor bike classes all winter long at Fast Blitz in Needham, Mass. Are, um, I do you know, 10, 11 classes a week, and it's a ton of fun on Compu Trainers. Well, while we can still keep the parts to keep the compu trainers alive, we'll keep those going. Um, so, uh, yeah, you can find out about those on the on the website or on the Fast Blitz website. So, I love I love those because I love I love coaching people in person. You know, I get a lot more out of that than sitting down at a computer writing workouts out. So, I really enjoy the in person uh, training. Yeah, yeah. All right, brilliant. Thank you so much, Karen. This has been a great pleasure. And I think that a lot of listeners, especially those masters athletes, will get a lot out of this. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Keep the podcast going. This is great. So I think that this was a really, really inspirational episode for anybody, but especially so for Masters athletes. Uh, and, and for the Masters athletes, of course, there were a lot of practical tips and takeaways that were informational as much as inspirational. And I know from the emails that I get from you guys that many of the things that we got into in terms of the informational content are the exact questions that you you tend to have related to triathlon training and racing as a master's athlete. And I took away a few things that I want to point out here. And uh, those are perseverance. If, if you think about all of the things that Karen went through, it's really most would have given up a long, long time ago, but she persevered through it. And uh, she had so much success through it after, after challenge after challenge of, Things coming up all the way, not going right, injuries, uh, cancer, what have you. But she persevered. And I think that's something that we all need to do. I'm definitely trying to take a leaf out of her book with with my current injury situation uh, from running. And uh, related to the perseverance, I think that, or it definitely sounds like, I think Karen probably even told me when we talked maybe before or after the interview, that what allowed her to do that was... uh, love for the sport and that's obviously that's always something that we need to keep in mind we do this we're not paid to do this to do this we do it because we love it it gives us joy and uh yeah so remember that that's why you do it and and keep that perspective and uh finally more informational piece of information i would say informational piece of information uh i don't know if that's (laughs) the best expression i could have used whatever an interesting thing that karen said was uh, the thing about not necessarily having to kill yourself in your workouts but saving uh, those uh, those efforts for races and i think it's important to point out as we often hear athletes and coaches that say the complete opposite 
For example, I again relate to Malcolm Brown in episode 96, talking about the Brownlee brothers and how they train. Uh, they go out and, and attack the workers and try to kill themselves and kill each other <laughs> with how hard they go. But, but this just goes to show that different approaches work for different people and, and there is no one-size-fits-all approach. So, so finding what works for you and or working with a coach that can help you find what works for you, those, that's really, really important in triathlon training, not just taking anything at face value. So if you have any further questions or comments on today's show, you are welcome to comment on the show notes page that, as usual, can be found on thattriathlonshow.com. Just click through to this episode and the comments can be found on uh, the bottom of the show notes page. And of course, that's where I'll have the, the summary of this episode or like very very extensive cliff notes actually if you haven't seen the show notes uh, for that triathlon show before make sure that you go and check them out because you uh, you can find a lot of things that you you might not remember after listening to the episodes by going going back to them and reading them and that can allow you to maybe highlight some things that you want to remember and uh, yeah get those those key points to to kind of get them into your your memory more properly in the long-term memory so that's about it for this episode. Next episode on Thursday, I talk to Dr. Stacy Sims on uh, special considerations regarding training, nutrition, hydration, and, and other things for female athletes compared to, to male athletes. So all you girls, ladies should definitely check that episode out. And uh, I think it's obviously something that's very good for anybody to know but uh yeah uh definitely you you ladies should should listen to it and, and any co- any coach listening to this should 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 know these things and, and listen to that episode and of course as usual if you like this podcast i really appreciate it if you can tell your friends about it spreading the word i recently interacted with a, a few people in uh, in the united kingdom that uh, had never heard about the podcast and then they started listening to it and were just blown away and super appreciative of it but said that that i do a pretty crappy job of marketing it since they hadn't heard about it <laughs> so my my response to that is i'm trying now so uh, specifically to all you united kingdom listeners go and, and market this podcast for me uh, if if you like it please <laughs> that would be really helpful and another thing that helps is rating and review reviewing the podcast on itunes or apple podcasts whatever they call it they seem to change the names all the time but uh, yeah that, that also helps me get the word out Finally, one thing that really helps me keeping the show alive, of course, is our sponsors that we really appreciate. Triathlon Corner, the online home of shopping, great triathlon products, two great prices with fantastic customer service, worldwide shipping, brands like Café du Cycliste, Zone Free, Mako, Garmin, Stages Power, Hoka One One and others. And you can find them on triathlon-corner.store. And thank you to Precision Hydration. As I said, you need to train your nutrition hydration even if uh, you think that it's a long time still to your races. They will be here soon and, and it takes it can take months to really nail your nutrition and hydration strategy. So now is the time to go and get those electrolyte products that you, that you want so that you don't cramp, don't limit your performance by 
letting your sodium levels run low. Check out episode 49 of this podcast for more information on that. And of course, check out precisionization.com and use the code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, to get your first box for free. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.